Yeah? Good evening, everybody. Oh, that's, that's a bit loud, isn't it? Sack the sound engineer. Well, that's, that's thrown me a little bit, that reading, because uh, I've always known this passage as the parable of the talents, not the parable of the bags of gold, but never mind. We will uh, carry on anyway. Uh, let's just pray. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for your word and for the freedom that we have to be able to read your word. And tonight I pray... By the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak into our hearts those things that you want to reveal to us. Father, help us to be more than just hearers of the word, but also help us to be doers of the word as well. Lord, for your glory and for your honour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, Kirst has just read the passage, and I just thought it would be good, even though it might seem a little bit uh, uh, tedious to begin with, to just go over some issues uh, relating to the passage in order to to try and set some kind of a context. Because, uh, you know, if you take a a passage of scripture, if you take a text out of context, in isolation to its co-text, it becomes a pretext. And a pretext is a bad text. So... (laughs) So we're going to try and lay a little bit of a foundation because I think it's really important when we read the scripture that we approach it from the right angle. Because unless we approach it from the right angle, we could end up off on a tangent somewhere. I'm really keen to allow the scripture to just speak for itself rather than me trying to make it say something to fit in with my own preconceived ideas. So the first thing we want to say uh, is in regard to the context This passage is known theologically as the Olivet Discourse. And the reason why that is, is because Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. We see that in chapter 24, verse 3. It says, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples were looking up at the temple And they were marvelling at all the works of the temple because the temple was being built at that time. And Jesus prophesied that everything about that temple is going to be destroyed. And of course it was in AD 70. So we go into this discourse at the Mount of Olives. And uh, Jesus speaks to his disciples first and foremost about the end of the age in uh, chapter 24. He's talking about what signs to expect at his second coming, wars, rumours of wars, etc., etc. He's talking about the fact that there's going to be uh, deception at the end of the age. And he's giving the disciples some pointers on what to expect on his second coming. And that's what we read, sort of like from the beginning of chapter 24 uh, up until verse 41. But then from verse 41, uh, 42, sorry, to the end of... Uh, 25, uh, 30, he talks about what our response should be in light of the things that he's just said. So the place is the Mount of Olives. It's all about the location. Location, location, location. It's the Mount of Olives. And you know, that might not seem like a very important thing to throw in, but if you think about it, this is only a matter of days before the Passover And it's only a matter of days before Jesus is going to be handed over to the authorities and crucified. So let's just imagine the poignancy that encapsulates this scripture. Because Jesus knows full well 
what's going to happen to him. And he also knows that when he returns at the end of the age, it's the Mount of Olives that he's going to stand on. So this is of huge significance that Jesus should be talking about these things in this particular place because the Mount of Olives is very important. So the place is the Mount of Olives. Time-wise, as I just said, it's just before the Passover. It's just before his impending death. And that's important to, to take into consideration as well because bear this in mind. A condemned man does not talk about the price of cheese. A condemned man does not talk about triviality and about things that don't matter. What we need to recognise is that Jesus now is beginning to offload all of the things that he knows his disciples need to hear. And it's the gospel message that he's talking about over and over and over again, which I believe is the context. Jesus is really trying to hammer home some important pointers so it's maybe it's significant that this is the last recorded parable that, that Jesus speaks of. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I don't know. But it is anyway, the last recorded parable. Now the other thing I want to say is the word talent. All right, I don't know if you realise, but I'm a fluent Greek speaker. So I can tell you quite confidently that the word talent comes from the word talentino. Not tarantino, but talentino. And actually, a talent is not a gift, it's not an ability. A talent, uh, in, the, in the scripture, is a Greek uh, measurement of money. Okay, so a talent is a measurement of money. And they reckon that a, one talent was worth about 6,000 drachma. Now, an ordinary slave, a household slave in Roman times, could only hope to earn about one drachma a day. So that kind of puts into context the huge sums of money that's being spoken of here. In today's terms, a talent is tens and tens of thousands of pounds. So it's a lot of money. Okay, now the other thing to mention as well, I don't want to bore you, but I just need to sort of like just say these things just to sort of give it a little bit of background. The whole thing about slavery is really important as well. And it's good that we try to understand this because this will help us to really get the most out of the parable. See, the thing is, we, we mostly think in the Western world in terms of slavery. Oh, I don't know about you, I'm going to show my age now. Do you remember that programme that used to be on called Roots? Do you remember that? And it was all about black slavery and all the rest of it and obviously the injustice of all that. And that kind of colours our perception of what slavery is. But in actual fact, in Roman times, uh, slavery wasn't as straightforward as we might assume. In fact, slavery in ancient Rome was a complex and highly lucrative business. And not all slaves were the same in terms of the way they were valued. And it's interesting to note, for the benefit of understanding the text, that a household slave was in the main well-treated and could over time gain their freedom and acquire property, they could acquire wealth, they'd have been trusted, and they could have been someone that was even born into the, the household of the slave owner. In fact, a slave, in this particular context, could even earn their freedom. They could earn their freedom and they could uh, acquire wealth and all sorts of things. So it's not quite as we might expect, because household slaves were highly prized by their masters. Because the other thing to bear in mind is a household slave could cost a lot of money. So if you're paying out a lot of money for a household slave, 
the last thing you're going to do is treat that slave badly because that's an investment. That person is an investment. So you're going to look after that household slave. Okay. So far, so good. Are you still with me? Yeah? Cool. Lovely. See, this is what I do during the day when I'm painting. I don't just sort of paint and hang wallpaper. I do sort of like read things and listen to things on the internet. So, you know, I sound a bit stupid, but hopefully I've got a brain. Anyway, so the last thing to mention is what is a parable? Well, that might seem like a bit of a stupid question to ask because we probably think, well, you know, everybody knows what a a parable is. But actually, I'm not so sure because uh, a parable, well, is a parable something that's meant to reveal truth? Or is a parable something that's meant to hide the truth? Well, in actual fact, a parable is something, more often than not, that's used to hide truth rather than to reveal it. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, in verse 10, it says, The disciples came to him and, he, and they said, Why do you speak in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the crowd this is, it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. That's a common theme. And he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, pages are stuck together. I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. So there's a sense that uh, a parable is a story that's spoken that kind of hides the truth to a certain extent. But once you become uh, a believer, I suppose, and the power of the Holy Spirit begins to fill your life, you have the power then to be able to understand the concept of a parable. The Jewish scholars know parables by a sort of Jewish uh, uh, way of looking at scriptures that's called the Mashal and the Nimshal. And the Mashal is the story, uh, and the Nimshal is the practical application. So that's just something to throw in there. So, okay, you've all been listening very well. Very good. So we've looked at location, Mount of Olives. We've looked at the timing. It's just before the Passover, It's just before when Jesus is going to be handed over to the authorities and crucified. We know that talents from the scripture is not talking about abilities. It's not talking about gifting, but it's talking about measurements of money. We know that slaves uh, could be very well trusted. That's very interesting for this parable. And we've spoken about parables. All right. So that might seem all incidental, but the background helps us to approach the text from the right angle. So with this in mind, let's go through the passage little by little and uh, hopefully we might be able to just glean some, uh, some gems out of it. So I'm reading from a different version. 
uh, a better version than the one that was just read from. <laughs> and uh, we're going from uh, cha- uh, verse 14 of chapter 25. Just one thing to note. Before this, Jesus is talking about the parable of the ten virgins, the virgins. And it's all in regard to being ready uh, and what, how we should be ready for Jesus' return. So, verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. So the talents were bestowed on the basis of potential and ability, and they weren't given, uh, it wasn't the bestowing of the abilities themselves, okay? So the talents were bestowed on the basis of potential and ability, not the bestowing of the abilities themselves. And there's obviously a trust that this master is giving to these slaves. I would say that in effect what he's doing is he's giving these slaves uh, control over the family jewels. And if you really wanted to pare it down in the context... I think that the fundamental thing that Jesus is talking about here, bearing in mind what he's about to go through, is the gospel message. And he's giving these servants huge amounts of money. So really, he's giving them a trust. He's entrusting them with a responsibility. So note that in verse 16 it says, Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. And in the same manner, the one who would receive the two talents gained two more. I think it's really interesting that in my version, the good version, the word that's used here is immediately. You know, that suggests that this is not a task that's regarded as burdensome, but rather one that's embarked upon with eagerness, which implies a strong desire to bless the master. It seems to speak to me of servants that actually know what their master's like and what he's about. It's not like they're thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, you know, I really don't want to do this. You know, this is just going to be such an onerous task. It's immediately they get these talents. They put them to good work. You know, I can really identify with that because, you know, when I first became a Christian uh, a number of years ago now, That's what it was like for me. As soon as I heard the gospel message and as soon as I responded, immediately I just wanted to go out and tell everybody about the love of God. So it's not something that's enforced upon these slaves, far from it. This is something that they seem to really take up with a relish. So, verse 18, uh, But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, this shows that this particular servant failed to understand his master's will and therefore, probably, really didn't know his master. But what it also shows, perhaps, just as tellingly, is that this one, and this is very interesting, this one substitutes security for service. He played safe rather than take a risk. And you could say maybe, in effect, he lacked faith. So verse 19, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who received the five talents came up 
and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two, ta- two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, I've heard it said, and I think this is true, that the true test of faithfulness is based on the fact that the master is a long time coming. You know, when you are in a position when you think that something's not going to happen for a very, 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 very long time, it's really going to test the metal of an individual. It's either going to uh, encapsulate in that person the desire to be faithful, or it's going to bring about an attitude of laziness because you think in the back of your mind, I've got all the time in the world. It doesn't really matter because everybody's been saying that, you know, Christ is going to return, he's going to, but this is a long time in coming. And it can produce the opposite effect. So faithfulness is truly tested when the master seems to be a long way off. The not knowing is what tests the metal of an individual. It's what has the effect, possibly, of bringing about a lackadaisical attitude if you think that, you know, it's not going to happen for a long time. But we see that a return on his investment is not just something that's required, it's absolutely expected. You know, the master gives these servants uh, a, a responsibility, a trust. He gives them something that's of great value to him. In effect, he's leaving, you could say, uh, if you wanted to sort of put it into a more practical application, he's leaving us with the thing that's most precious to his heart. And that's the gospel message. Now, obviously, you know, you've got some people, you could say, are five-talent believers. And they're people maybe that you could suppose are leaders of churches and to use the Anglican parlance, bishops and, and all the rest of it. You know, people like, you know, Pads over here who's super anointed and what have you. But to be quite honest, and to, to be really honest, those people are few and far between. The majority of people in church, you could say, are two-talent and one-talent Christians. And I think it's really interesting to note that there's a big discrepancy between the the guy that's got the five talents and the next one down who's got two. Obviously, they were both trusted, but the guy who's got two has really only got one more than the guy who's got one. And I think that's really interesting because I think most Christians could be probably put into that category. We're just ordinary folk going about our business. We're not super duper Christians necessarily in terms of, you know, being the people that are speaking in front of thousands on platforms and all the rest of it. But we've still been given a trust. We've still been given a trust with the gospel. And Jesus still uh, expects a return on his investment. The the guy with the two talents could quite easily have compared himself to the guy with five and straight away become discouraged and thought to himself, well, you know, my master obviously thinks a lot more of that chap over there than he does of me. He's given him five talents. 
He's only given me two. He's only given me one more than this chap over here, who probably would have been recognised as someone who is a little bit lazy in the first place anyway. So it would have been so easy for the two-talent Christian, as it were, to become really disgruntled, to become embittered, and to just think, well, what's the point? My master doesn't think much more of me than he does of the one who's got the one. But it's also interesting to note that the commendation upon their uh, uh, having invested the money is exactly the same, and we'll have a look at that later on. In fact, proportionately, it's exactly the same. The other intro... All right, let's... uh, Where are we? Where did I get up to? 1923. Okay, so let's look at this. Uh... Right, okay, verse 21. His master said to him, uh, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, this is really interesting. Because what the master is saying to him, or not saying to him, is not saying to this chap, because you've done so well as a believer, because I've entrusted you with this responsibility, you've given me a return, here's your pension, here's your golden handshake, here's a cloud to sit on, and here's a harp to play. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's actually given him even more responsibility. Now, I don't know about you, but I think there are some Christians that think that, you know, we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be some kind of ethereal spirit that's going to be floating around in the ether somewhere. And uh, all we're going to do is sort of like sit back and enjoy ourselves and eat grapes and just have a high old time of it. But the kingdom of heaven is not like that. The kingdom of heaven, I don't believe, is like that. And I believe that this is basically what this is alluding to. Because the Bible also says that at the end of the age, we will judge nations. We will judge angels. You know, there's a sense that we are going to rule and reign with Christ in his new kingdom. And I think that the basis of how we respond to the gospel in terms of the way that we outwork our faith is really important. Because I think it has eternal significance Inasmuch that even though we are all equal in the sight of God, because we're all saved by the same gospel, there is a sense that as a result of our faithfulness, there are going to be rewards in the heavenly kingdom. Now, verse 24. The one who received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Can you see the difference between this one's response and the other two? The other two, straight away, there's your money. You know, this is what I've gained. But, you know, this guy, he's making up excuses before he's even started. You know, he's, he's a bit mealy-mouthed and all the rest of it. But the thing that really jumps out to me is his impertinence. Because it's almost like he's casting aspersions upon his master. It's almost like he's blaming the master for his own failings. It's almost like saying, well, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew that you judge me. I knew that you scatter seed where you didn't sow, etc., etc. So therefore, what's the point? I'm just going to hide my talent. It represents... And I got this from a commentary, and this is a really interesting quote. It represents a discipleship which consists of playing safe 
and so achieves nothing. It's religion concerned only with not doing anything wrong. Being ready consists not only of keeping your slate clean, but it's active, responsible service which produces results. Now, he could have at least put the money in the bank and got some interest, which is an interesting thing, because in, you know, usury was forbidden in the Jewish culture. So that, in a sense, in the context, would have been a wrong th- thing to do. But it's almost like the master is saying, you could have at least done that. You could have at least done something with that money rather than bury it and get no return. Why don't you just take it to the bank and get some interest? It just made me think, you know, how does that play out today? You know, what's a one-talent Christian like? I could give you a couple of examples. It's kind of like a Christian that says something like, oh yeah, I'm a believer, I believe in God. Uh, but, you know, religion's a very private matter. And uh, Christianity, well, you know, I just, I just like to keep it to myself because it's, it's very private. It's, it's not something that I like to talk about. Well, it may not be. But if you look at the scripture, that certainly does not seem to be the attitude of Jesus. If we know who Jesus is, if we know of his saving grace then I think really it's impossible for us to be a Christian like that. Or again, it could be someone, and I suppose this is something, I don't know, well, no, I won't say it's probably something more to do with the Church of England. (laughs) But that's only because I was going to use the vicar as as an example. (laughs) But it could be, it could be a Christian that says, well, look, you know, we're paying the vicar. You know, we've got the vicar. The vicar's the one that does all the preaching. The vicar's the one that does all the teaching. The, you know, we, we, do, we don't need to do anything. That's what we've employed pads for. Let pads do the work. Well, that could be a view that someone can take. But the Bible teaches that ministry is body ministry. And we've all been called uh, in accordance by the grace of God. And I don't think it's just down to pads to be the one that goes out into the community to tell people the good news of Jesus. So, verse 26, his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I scattered, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would receive my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. It seems really unfair, especially in today's uh, age of fairness. You know, this is what the politicians are banging on about left, right and centre, about being fair. Maybe it seems unfair, but really it's not. Because the guy that had the one talent was still given a trust. And I think the master must have perceived something in that chap uh, to only give him the one talent. He could have not bothered at all, but he gave him a chance. At least he gave him a chance to do something with it. And I think it's probably quite obvious that he knew that more likely than not, this was going to be the end result. And so it says, For to everyone who has more shall be given. Uh, for to everyone who has more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. 
Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, when Pads asked me to speak about this, I think it was in the context of community. And I haven't really spoken that much about community. But I think that there is an application that we can draw from this. Because at the end of the day, as I said before, I think the thing that we've been entrusted with, the most precious thing that we've been entrusted with, is, is the glorious gospel message of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that, uh, that the gospel message is the power of God unto salvation. Without Jesus, there can be no salvation because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father except through him. When you really think about it, there's lots of things that we can do in the community. We can do good works and all kinds of things, and they all have a value. But good works on their own is not what's going to bring about the regeneration of a community. It's going to be people hearing the gospel message and responding to it. I mean, really, when you think about it, I don't necessarily think that primarily the early church was called to be a social action group of people, primarily. Although social justice and all the rest of it came out of the things that they did, I don't think they put the cart before the horse by thinking they could right all the wrongs of the world, what they did was preach the gospel. And the gospel produced the response. The gospel produced a difference in people's lives and in their hearts. And as a consequence, the gospel was what turned Jerusalem upside down. So we've all been given a trust. We've all been given a responsibility. And I think that, you know, in the context of this community, I think that really... You know, we need to really bear in mind the, 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 the message that's being spoken of here in Matthew 25 because it would be so easy for us to fall into the trap of being the kind of Christian that thinks that the contribution that they can make is not going to be good enough and all that we do is go and dig a hole and bury it because Jesus is looking for a return on his investment and you are his investment. You know, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he endured the cross and scored its shame for us because he knew that one day there'd be a group of people that might gather in a place like this that could actually do something of great value. So, I think I'm just about at the end of what it is I want to say. But it might be good, I don't know if the the band's going to play or or how you're going to finish it, but it, it might be good... Uh, in light of everything that I've said, to just really ponder on on some of the things that uh, we've been talking about. And if you're in that place where you're kind of wondering whether or not your contribution is of much use, maybe it's a time just to kind of really do some business with God. Maybe it's a time to sort of like, you know, draw a line in the sand once more and, uh, and just commit to actually living out the gospel message and just commit once again to actually preaching the gospel message. And I really want to say that, you know, just because I'm stood here saying these things, I don't feel in any way, shape or form that I'm any more sort of better qualified uh, to go about this stuff than the the rest of anyone. Uh, In fact, when I was looking at this uh, scripture, it really challenged me because I recognised that, you know, uh, over the years perhaps I've gone off the boil a little bit myself and it's really sort of convicted me in a sense to uh, be about God's business more so uh, yeah maybe it might be an, an opportunity if the, if the band plays 
just for people to respond. If someone wants prayer or something like that, maybe uh, pads or whoever uh, could pray with you and ask God for a fresh outpouring of his Holy Spirit to empower you to go out into the highways and byways and tell the lost the good news of Jesus. Amen.